was going to start it by singing Spanish ladies, but I decided <laughs> not to. Uh, what's up, everybody? I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. And this is this week's episode of Fried Squirms. What number is this? 167. I'm so glad that you keep track of that, because I do not <laughs> at all. What I do know is that this week we're going to be talking about Jaws, and that we accidentally picked it at a time so that I watched it on its 45th anniversary. That's awesome, dude. This weekend has been the 45th anniversary of Jaws by the time this episode comes out. That's not the case. But before we get there, though, we probably need to get a bit high. I will admit I did just smoke during my other podcast, too, so I'm still coming down a little bit, but I am going to fire up a joint of Very Berry. Nice. Which I finally found out some of the genetics for. It's strawberry cough mixed with super silver haze. So that's what I'm getting at. Nice. Yeah, so I brought over a joint of some Bruce Banner. Now, I couldn't tell you which phenotype it is because it wasn't listed as such. And there's a shit ton of Bruce Banner phenotypes. Just a little bit of the information I've been reading. It says there's a phenotype number one, a number three, and a number five. And apparently the number three it won like a high times cup in Denver. Mm -hmm. And it tested like the highest testing one that it's ever done or ever had been at that point. Yeah, which is really interesting. So some of the information for those who are curious, I already mentioned that it is extremely high in THC content. So some of that, it says you can get up to about 30%. I think this one that I've got, it is from a local dispensary here in town, Remedy. And there's this testing right at 20%, which is fine. I think anything, for me, in sativas, anything above 15%, I'm fucking, yeah. I'm ready to go. So with this, though, this strain, it's not recommended for newbies, which we are not newcomers, <laughs> which is awesome. But... It does help with anxiousness and paranoia. It also, it's good for afternoon or evening use because it typically relaxes the body, creates a good buzz. It says it helps with minor aches and pains. It is a sativa dominant hybrid. Let's see here. Some of the terpenes, actually, I was kind of curious about this. It tests about 4%, which is really high for terpene profiles for linalool, which that one is very similar to like the lavender sensation, Mm -hmm. scents and stuff like that has that beta carophyllene, which the carophyllene has a little bit of that peppery poo-poo smell. That one's really good for just kind of chillaxing. has humulene, which is another one of those relaxants, and alpha-pinene. So pretty excited about this one. And uh, yeah, it's like the first time I've tried this one from Remedy as well. Nice. Uh, yeah, I picked my very berry up at Top Shelf again because it's just right down the road. Top Shelf. But I think next week I'm going to try to branch out a little bit more. I... My birthday is coming up this week, yeah, so I took really? an extra couple of days off. So I think during those days off, I might wander up to a couple of the other shops in town. So hell yeah, that's we'll, awesome. We'll see what actually happens, though. I might just like sit around and like order food and get super stoned and <laughs> just enjoy having the day off. So yeah, man. Well, you deserve it. It's your birthday week. That's right. Shit. Well, let's start smoking, and we'll get into the guts and boats <laughs> of Jaws. Guts and Bolts. All right. Guts and Bolts of Jaws. Being the spoiler-free section, we'll start with the spoiler-free setup. Do we need spoiler? It's fucking Jaws. I know, right? Does anybody not? Anyway. 45 years later. Jesus Christ. (laughs) So a shark terrorizes a northeastern tourist town. Basically. Right? That's the setup for Jaws, right? Yeah. Yeah, the very basic, simple, spoiler-free synopsis. 25-foot. 25-footer. <laughs> exactly, dude. So, 
from week to week, of course, we like to talk about the cast and crew. And this week, we want to lead off with our director, superstar director, maybe not so much so at the time of filming, but certainly since then. And I am talking about Steven Spielberg, as if I need to introduce him to moviegoers. But for those who are not familiar, some of his titles that he's directed include the films Duel, some people might know him for the Sugarland Express. These are some of his earlier ones, but then the big hitters came right after Jaws, such things as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the film Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. He actually did one segment for Twilight Zone, the movie. He also helped with, of course, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Actually, the first film I actually recall seeing in the theater, believe this or not, is The Color Purple. Because my oh. grandmother was a huge Whoopi Goldberg fan. Interesting. And I do remember vaguely seeing that in the theater. Then he went on to do such films as Empire of the Sun, the film Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, War of the Worlds, Munich, uh, War Horse, Lincoln, BFG, The Post, Ready Player One, and looks like West Side Story. Did you ever watch Munich? Yeah, actually I did. I sure did. That was uh, Eric Bana, wasn't he in that? Yeah, and Daniel Craig. Yeah. And it's the movie where you're like, don't fuck with the Jews. Oh, no. The Mossad. Yeah, no. they'll fuck you up quick. They'll fuck you up. <laughs> Big dude, the phosphorus grenade and the dude's TV. Fuck. That was a pretty boss film. I did like that one. So, moving along, we have a couple different writers on this. We have Peter Benchley, which is actually the novelist that this film is based off of, of the same name. And some of his credits include such things as The Deep, which was the film adaptation. He actually was an actor in that one as well. His characters from Jaws were based off of uh, from Jaws 2. Then The Island, Jaws 3D, Jaws the Revenge, Dolphin Cove, The Beast, Creature, Amazon, and Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. And then we have Carl Gottlieb who helped write on such things as the Smother Brothers Comedy Hour, which, once again, my grandmother was a big Smothers Brothers fan. He also helped with the Bob Newhart show on The Family and The Odd Couple. Looks like he also made some uh, appearances on MASH, which is really interesting, and the film Clueless. There's an interesting little side story I'll tell later on on how he got involved and all that good stuff with the writing. All right, our cinematographer, a gentleman we've actually talked about before, and that gentleman is Bill Butler, because we've talked about him on episode 18, and that was Child's Play, oh, and shit. also episode 46, because he was a DP on Frailty. Of course he was. Yeah, but some of his other films, in case people are curious, some big ones, I'll kind of you know go right to the point. If you've ever seen The Godfather, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, if you've ever seen such films as Damien... The Omen Part 2, the film Grease, you might have seen his work on Rocky Part 2, the film Stripes, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, An American Tale, which is actually really cool, the movie Hot Shots. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. What about Part 2? Part D, no, he's not credited, unfortunately, with that, but maybe if you've seen the film Anaconda, Redline, Evil Angel, some of those, and of course he's got a... How do you go from Jaws to Anaconda? Creature feature. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> That's the only thing. Well, I mean, you know, he made up for it with Jaws and Frailty and yeah. some of the <laughs> Rocky films and things like that. Grease, if you're into that kind of stuff. So, you know, not too bad. Go grease lighting and you're burning up the quarter mile. All right, here's a really interesting name. We have an editor on this film. Her name is Verna Fields. And for some of those who are curious, she actually started off way back in the day, back in like the late 50s, essentially, but... 
She was actually a sound editor for Fritz Lang's While the City Sleeps. She also taught some editing techniques, which is really interesting. She helped with George Lucas's American Graffiti. And then when you look at some other works, uh, some of those include the films Medium Cool, the film What's Up Doc. She actually worked with Peter Bagdanovich on a few films. The other one was uh, Daisy Miller. She also helped with Paper Moon, which is another Bagdanovich film, and The Sugarland Express, which was another one of those Steven Spielberg films. But yeah, highly accredited editor, especially being a female as well. Really cool. All right, and a huge name in our music, and that is our composer. And I'm talking about John Williams. So as if I need to introduce him as well, he has a laundry list of fucking films, <laughs> man. It goes back from the 50s. You can look at stuff like, let's see here. He scored Peter Gunn, the 1959 film, mm-hmm. Days of Wine and Roses, and the 1963 film Charade. He also helped compose stuff for various television programs, which included Gilligan's Island, the pilot episode for that, Lost in Space. Like, honestly, like Steven Spielberg probably oh. owes John Williams like half of his awards. No kidding, man. Well, when I think of those, all right, we'll get straight to the point, right? So the Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's one like stands out. How about some George Lucas stuff? Star Wars, all the Star Wars <laughs> main themes from that. The Superman theme. Yeah, dude. Awesome. E.T. Yep. Hook. Yeah. Hook. Empire of the uh, Sun. First three Harry Potters. That's ridiculous, man. So much shit. So much stupidly iconic music. Yeah, I'm just kind of going through it. Any one of these is like, oh, cool, you're going down in history. Oh, easily. So if you've seen any of those films, any of those we've mentioned, you've heard his score and you're very familiar no wonder why he's in an award-winning Look, we're talking about Jaws. Composer. You've already heard the score to this movie, too. I hope so. Even if you haven't seen it, you probably do know the score. You know at least the... Dun-dun. Yeah, exactly. Dun-dun. Infamous. All right. <laughs> the producers, we have David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck. Production companies of this were Zanuck Brown Productions and Universal Pictures. The distributor was Universal Pictures for the 1975 United States theatrical release, which they are an MCA company. The release date was June 20th, 1975 here in the States. It had an estimated budget of about 7 to $9 million. It had an opening weekend of $7.1 million, and it grossed here in the States $260 million. And if you add in worldwide... It raked in right at $471 million. All right, we have a couple of taglines. I mean, there are several, but the two that I wrote down is, if you want to survive fishing season, don't go in the water. And the second one is, you'll never go in the water again. (laughs) All right, so moving along, I'm going to go into our cast, and I'm going to lead off with Roy Scheider, who plays the role of Chief Martin Brody. I'm sure we're going to name off a couple other people, but there's three that matter. Oh, yeah, essentially. Roy Scheider's the first one. Mm -hmm. And for people who are familiar with Roy, or if they're not, some of his film titles include The French Connection, the film The Seven Ups. You might have seen him in Marathon Man. He's also in the film All That Jazz. He was in the film 2010, which was the sequel to 2001. So if you notice, he's got a couple of credits with William Freakin, because mm-hmm. there was a lot of those that he directed. He was also in the television series Sequest DSV. I know we've talked about that before because of uh, Jonathan Brandis from It. And in the Thomas Jane Punisher movie from 2004, he plays 
his father. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, he was also in David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Man, I'm telling you, that film was wild. He was also in the films The Rainmaker. You might have seen him in uh, Red Serpent. He also reprised his role as Brody in uh, Jaws Part 2. Yeah, so it's really cool. he didn't want to. Yeah. Well, at least it wasn't the revenge. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and next we're going to go into Robert Shaw, who plays the role of Quint. And some people might recognize him because he was in From Russia With Love, which is a really dope-ass James Bond film. You might have also seen him in Hamlet. Well, he was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe in A Man for All Seasons when he played uh, Henry VIII. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, some of the other film credits include Battle of the Bulge, Custer of the West. He was also in The Birthday Party. You might have seen him in such things as The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Even though he went uncredited in that, he was also in uh, End of the Game, Black Sunday, Avalanche Express, and the film The Deep. And a ton of stage credits, ton of television work as well. All right, moving forward, another big name, we have Richard Dreyfus. As if you didn't know who he was, but he plays the role of Matt Hooper in our film here. And some of his film titles include The Graduate, which I didn't realize he was a part of that. I knew he was in American Graffiti. Uh, that's major reason why he got this film. He was also in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Actually, one well, of my favorite films. He's in The Graduate. He's technically uncredited. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. He's also, like I said, in one of my favorite films, Stand By Me. Uh, what About Bob? What about Bob? I love that film, man. He was also in those stakeout films. I don't know if you ever watched any of those. No, I was going to say a movie that I fucking love, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I don't think I've ever seen that, actually. great. Nice, man. Yeah, he Uh, was... uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Yeah, that's a huge film. Mr. Holland's Opus. Wes Craven. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? (laughs) All right, let's see here. Some of other things include, uh, more recently, the film W, because he played Dick Cheney. Actually, a film I have seen, Leaves of Grass, which is really awesome. He was in Piranha 3D, if you can believe that. He was in the films Polar, more recently Astronaut. meaning to watch Polar. That one's got Mads in it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah. Nice. But yeah, just uh, one of those recognizable faces as well. All right, we have Lorraine Gary, who plays the role of Ellen Brody, who is the wife of Chief Brody in this film. Now, a part of the reason why she was in this is because I believe she was the wife of one of like the main guys at Universal at the time. Mm. So it was like kind of an easy choice. But she was also in... Car Wash. Yeah, she was in Car Wash, which was awesome. Car Wash. I never promised you a Rose Garden, Tyler. She was also in that. She was in Zero to Sixty, Jaws Part Two. She was in The Revenge and 1941. She also had... Various credits in television. Just a few of those. Dragnet, uh, The Virginian. She was also in Macmillan and Wife. <laughs> uh, Ironside. Yeah, dude. That's pretty awesome. Night Gallery. Another good one. Now, The Revenge was actually her last film role. Oh, did not know that. Yeah, she retired from acting after that. I can see why. <laughs> Didn't really need to act. We've well, already you go from there. I know, right? We've already mentioned Carl Gottlieb because he's one of the writers, but he also plays the role of Meadows in the film. We have Jeffrey Kramer. He plays the role of Deputy Hendricks. Some people might recognize him because he also reprises his role in Jaws Part Two. You might have seen him in MASH, the television series from 77, and he also had an episode in 1980. He was in Halloween Part Two, the film Clue, and another one of my favorite films, The Burbs. Hmm. All right, moving ahead, we have Susan Bacalini. She plays the role of Chrissy Watkins. She's like one of the oh. first gals in yeah. the water. 
All right, she was in the films Day of the Animals, the film 1941, and The Great Muppet Caper. All right, we have Lee Fierro. She plays the role of Mrs. Kintner. She was also in Jaws the Revenge and the film The Mist Overtell. And last but not least, as far as the credits that I'm giving out. Dude, so she died like two months ago. I didn't realize it was that sudden. Complications from the Rona. Damn, really? Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, dude. Wow, I had no idea. I know there was like a, an interesting little side note about her and the guy who played her son in this film, how they met up years mm. later after filming. All right, but the last credit that I have, of course, certainly not least, is of Peter Benchley. Like I said, he's our writer, but he actually is the, like the newscaster mm-hmm. in this. Uh, he's actually been in some other films, such things as The Deep. He was in Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. Uh, the Deep is also based on one of his novels. Yeah. And <laughs> he also made an appearance in Creature, a television miniseries back Which in 1998. also based on one of his novels. Go figure. <laughs> it's kind of a no-brainer. But yeah, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I know you gave us a brief synopsis. We should give you guys some warnings heading into this film. Warnings. Sharks eating people. Yep. There's more. Shark eating people. There's not multiple sharks. This isn't one of the major ones. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Let's see. If you you have an aversion to open water and or beaches or anything related to the aquatic life, then yeah, you're going to be probably averse to this film a bit. But it's super mild. I mean, it's rated PG, understandably so. I mean, I know we've talked about the the ratings yep. and all that shit. I was about to say this is before the PG thirteen rating, right? Which I'd that probably more garners that would get. I would say this one would probably have ended up getting a PG thirteen rating if this. Yeah, one, if, it, if it came out now or even in the eighties when the yeah when it was prevalent. So there's a decent amount of like blood. There is like body parts and yeah, not not too a bad. lot, but it's but no, there's there. yeah, there's some some moments where you get to see all that good stuff, and including like some medical pictures. Which, those are pretty gnarly. <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah, like, it's a mild language. Some, I mean, some very, very mild nudity, if you're even looking for it. Yeah. I think that's it, though. Yeah, like I said, outside of that, it's pretty tame for the most part. Well, uh, let's get into finding out how Jaws made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right, so, as I was watching Jaws this morning... Kind of, no, we'll, we'll see what ends up actually happening. I'm sure as, as we smoke these down, we'll find shit to talk about. But I don't know what we can add to the discussion. Like, there's been documentaries made on this movie. We're not adding anything new in this episode. If anything, we kind of gave ourselves a break to start summer. Yeah, exactly. It's a good <laughs> summertime film. It's the first summer blockbuster. In a time where we're kind of missing blockbusters because the theaters aren't quite open again yet. Exactly. So why not bring a blockbuster home to you, our audience? So it's not like we're going to be able to bring anything new to the stage. So many people before us have already talked about this. Oh, yeah. And they have the resources to actually get into the shit. It's a 45-year-old film. There's bound to be some eyeballs on it. What we can bring is our experience with Jaws. Danny, what's your experience with Jaws? Okay, so I do have early recollections of this film, mainly because... My uncles and my dad and a few others in my family were fans, right? So growing up, I remember having like coloring books and I remember there was a Nintendo game and there was still a lot of memorabilia, right, from this film, even when I was like five, six, seven years old. Now, I remember seeing it, but I don't recall a lot of it, not until I was much older, not until I was actually in my late teens. And then, of course, 
TBS used to run the shit out of it during the summers, so you couldn't help but catch Jaws marathons. So I do have a bit of history with it. I'm not the biggest fan of the film by any stretch, but I'm very familiar with it. Mm -hmm. How about yourself? Near as I can remember, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw it would also have been like TBS marathons, TNT, something like that. One of the times when it played on television. From there, like I said, like I used to do a lot of reading on like monsters and shit in the library. And even though Jaws isn't necessarily a monster, it would get brought up now and then because it's a 25 foot great white. Oh, kidding, right? Yeah, I think that film, in a lot of ways, it did spark like a huge fascination with sharks for mm-hmm. kids. And that's the bigger thing. That combined with like Shark Week and then finding out that like, oh, this movie's based on a book meant that. Then, in like fifth and sixth grade, I used to reread things all the time. So I'm sure through high school, there's five main novels that Peter Benchley is known for. I've read four of them probably at least five or six times each. That's awesome. Now, it has been a while. I have a copy of Jaws just sitting on the other side of the room. I haven't actually read Jaws since like high school. I've probably read White Shark a lot more, which has been renamed Creature. You mentioned Creature earlier. I've read Beast, and White Shark was my favorite. I loved The Island. The Island was my jam. I've read that so many fucking times. Awesome. Once again, Island and White Shark would have been college those the last time I read those, and Jaws is so far back that I, I've looked up a couple of the differences. I don't remember any of the differences when I watch the movie. It's, it doesn't jump out at me. Oh, that's understandable. But well, that's pretty cool. You have more of the literary background. Yeah. I do. I mean, I do really enjoy Peter Benchley's stuff. And fucking rewatching this movie, like, I'm like, oh, shit, I might have to read that again. I might have to read The Island for sure again. I don't know if I have enough time in my life to actually do these things, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm thinking of wanting to do them at least. As far as this movie later on, though, past just, like, initial watching, I probably haven't seen it since Jesse lived here. But Jesse's a big fan of this movie, friend of the show who's been on here and who I'm sure is listening to this episode within a couple weeks of us putting it out. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. And former roommate, like, I've probably seen it with him three or four times at least. Nice. Because of how often he would watch it. So it had been a couple of years, but I fucking love this movie. What's cool, too, is how many times it does get referenced in other films, you know, mm-hmm. Scenes get lifted and whatnot. So it's another one of those iconic films that you've seen in other films. Maybe not actual footage, but scenes getting played out or borrowed from, playing homage to. So I thought that was really neat. Mm -hmm. What stood out to you from this time through? This time through, I think, is the fact that there was so much shit. I know watching films now that I totally forgot about way back when, you know, certain scenes. So watching it now, I think for me, was seeing how the way the film was paced, right? Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of what stood out to me. And some of the comedy written into it, too. And how... how fucking funny this movie was. Yeah, and how humanizing the writers made these characters feel, right? They they made him feel like somebody that you know or somebody, somebody else knows, you know, very relatable characters. So in that respect... I really enjoyed it because you actually felt somewhat of an attachment to these people in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck. I had forgotten how funny this movie was. There was a couple parts that had me just busting fucking I, up. If I had some kind of drink in my mouth during certain scenes, I definitely would have spit it out. Because there's a few times where I was just like, this shit is ridiculously funny. Because it's so sudden and 
just clever line delivery. Yeah, and yeah, there was a few moments where I chuckled a good bit. Well, not even that. So the part where I probably lost it the most, and this is jumping in the middle a bit, and I know we usually kind of go through this bit okay. by bit, but when the kids are playing the prank with the fucking shark fin, and everybody's rushing to get back <laughs> up on the beach... There's the dude that pulls the floaty out from the fucking kids and jumps on it. <laughs> like, what a fucking asshole. No, there were things like that. Like, even in that whole sequence, right? I like where the mayor goes up to that one guy and he's like, I need you to get out there in the water and swim. And the guy's like, I just put on suntan lotion and I'm trying to soak up the sun. And he's like, get your ass in there. No one's going in the water. But that's when the shit starts to kick off, yeah. and I, I do like that, too. There's some good little comedy moments. And I was thinking in that scene, too, and I'm sure this was the intention, too, and a little bit of the irony as well, is how everybody's panicking to get out of the water, and the people on the beach are running into the water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You're not helping anything by going into the water. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. And I even forgot about the little estuary part where Dew gets like get snacked on i'm like oh shit. yeah i kind of forgotten that that played out quite that way but then it it reminded me too of something i heard as a kid never really pieced it together until i heard it in this film this time through mm-hmm. and that's the little kid i think his name is sean in the film sean brody mm-hmm. where he's like do you know the muffin man <laughs> yeah i was like oh shit that little fucking kid's the one who sparked that i was like okay because i heard that so many times as a kid growing up so caught this the, the movie the the first time you know being played on tv it would constantly you know a couple times a year be played on tv in various places definitely remember during formative years of my life trying to catch the first five minutes so that you got that little flap of silhouetted side boob oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> be like it's just enough and oh i'm done oh uh, yes <laughs> i'm done <laughs> Or, or like when the camera's underneath her while she's swimming, you'd convince yourself you could see more than you could see. I know you're saying, yeah, from that angle, you're like, yep, I see some boob. I might see some bush. But you didn't. Nah. <laughs> you convinced yourself really well, though. Well, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what the imagination's for. <laughs> but my bigger question, upon rewatch, though, as I pay attention a little bit more at the very beginning when they're at the party the fuck's up with that girl i know she just appears and she stares at dude and he stares back well she's hanging out and everyone else is hanging out around the fire and she's like the loner off by herself but she's not just off by herself like she's sitting like two feet from like the trash can yeah that's like overflowing i think there's even like trash on the ground yeah it's like i think it's one of those barrel fires too right so and yeah she's by a barrel fire that is out and just smoking yeah that's it (laughs) i don't know that's weird i was just like what the fuck is with trash girl like chrissy (laughs) watkins whatever her name is chrissy wilkins Yeah, yeah yeah I don't fucking remember it. It's something close to that, right? Yeah. But she winds up leading... She's trash girl. Right. Which is a bit, uh, I don't know, maybe a bit of a coincidence, because she leads the drunken kid out on the beach to go skinny dipping, and that's where, you know, she becomes the first victim. Now, one of the things that I noticed, of course, this time through, is the score. I mean, John Williams' score initially sets the tone of this film for those underwater sequences Mm -hmm. and what happens in the water, so... It's like, okay, there we go. There it is. I don't think I've ever been that drunk that I fall asleep on the beach 
with a chick getting naked right in front of me. I know, dude. When I've already just gotten done running to the beach to begin with. So now, like, if nothing, I'm woke up by the fact that I just got done fucking running. Like, I know, man. And he's literally in his boxers right on the edge of the water. And I've been pretty fucking drunk, people. Yeah, I ain't I've been saying there. that, like, I'm a teetotaler. I ain't ever been that drunk. I'm like, no, I've been pretty fucking drunk. I ain't never been passed out when... Oh, when that's going on? No. Nope. At least when I've been able to make myself get that far in the first place. Like, I might pass out when that's going on if I was not good enough to get up and <laughs> run in the first place. Yeah. It's not worth the chase. Yeah. But he was good enough to get up and run in the first place. Uh, yeah. Took that's his clothes off, running, all that good stuff, right? I'm not sure if, you know, it broke my belief, but I'm sitting there looking like I was just disappointed in the dude. <laughs> exactly. Shame. Shame. I mean, I guess I saved his life, but... No, I mean, well, yeah, in retrospect, it, it certainly did. All right, so that does set the tone, right? She's the first victim. It's actually not bad. You don't get to see anything except for her just kind of yelling and screaming. Mm-hmm. You can feel the intensity of that moment. And then after that, we get the introduction of the Brody family, which I like, too. It, like I said, it's one of those scenes where it's trying to make you feel connected to this family, right? Looks like a, a New York family who's transplanted to, to Massachusetts, of course, up to Amity. And he's even trying to do some of, like, the ya, the ka, all that good stuff. That was really fun. Yeah. It was, I mean, no, it was, it's Just a moments great little like scene that. to yeah. set the scene. I mean, I know it's skipping ahead a little bit, but That's it right. is my very next note. And what kind of surprised me going through this time is I forgot that the Kentner boy had that much blood in him. Yeah, yeah. He got <laughs> fucked up good. He got fucked up real good. In some ways, for me, the attack on Alex Kentner is maybe one of the scariest little bits in the whole movie because you get just that flash of Bruce. Just a quick flash. And then it's just royal and blood. Yep. And I'm just like, fuck, I don't ever want to get hunted by something. That, especially in the water, man. No, You're dude, helpless. Fuck that. fuck that so hard. So helpless. I'm not one of those people that won't get in the ocean. Like, I like it. Like, I've been bodyboarding and shit. Yeah, like, likewise. I'm not so scared that I won't do it, but so much more than so many other things, like, it sets me on edge a little bit, no, just knowing, right. like, dude, water's not cool. Like, drowning seems Ugh. like a super shitty way to go. No thanks. And, like, the ocean isn't nice. No. And water can really fucking hurt. <laughs> yeah. And then you throw things like sharks in there. No, fuck that. (laughs) Yeah, you've got apex predators in the water waiting on you as a snack. I don't want to be a victim. And, like, I'm letting the wine creep into my voice. And, like I said, I go out there when I get the chance. We're landlocked. But there's something about it, though, where I'm like, just fuck that. Like, I don't want to get ate by something. That's not the way I want to go out. Well, since we're on this little tangent, right, have you ever had any encounters? In the ocean? Yeah. Or getting hunted? Well, let's, let's make it more relevant. Just the ocean. Ocean for now. Not with sharks and not me, but while going bodyboarding in San Diego one time with my little brother and my dad, my little brother got stung by a stingray. Mm-hmm. Not fun. Yeah. That's about the closest there. Although, while hunting here one time, just on the topic of being hunted, me and my little brother and a friend, we went out deer hunting. I did actually get my deer that day, and it made for a super long day. And by the time we came back around to the truck where we started to pick it up later in the evening, we saw where we started off on our hike, and we saw where 
a pack of wolves followed our tracks for oh, the first shit. like three quarters of a mile. Yeah, and we had no idea. Picked up on the scent. Dang. Yeah, that's that me some scary stuff. Yeah. Uh, my brief little encounter, if you want to call it that, is we would go down to Myrtle Beach a couple of summers back in junior high for me. And I think it was my sister Ashley and I, like they say in, in the film, is what's it like right near the beach, shallow water, maybe less oh, yeah. than 10 feet away from the beach. We were just doing that shit, just wading in the water and all that stuff. And I remember somebody's like, there's a shark in the water. I didn't see it. But I was quick enough to get my ass out of the water. I knew better, right? And I think those You're those like, sharks. I don't have that Kentner boy. No, no, no. I mean, it wasn't anything like a, a great white or any of those varieties. I think it was just a small one, right? Mm-hmm. Could have been. I don't know. I don't know exactly what you. One of those little suck your dick sharks. Yeah, <laughs> suck my toes off. <laughs> but that was, I think, the closest I've ever been to a shark, a live shark that is, in the water. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And yeah, outside of that, I remember going to, I wish I would have brought the picture. I went down to Columbia, South Carolina, once again in, in junior high. And can't remember the name of the museum right off the top of my head in Columbia, but they have the skeleton, like the jaw yeah. skeleton of a great white. And it is fucking frightening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And there's a picture of me where they've got the skeleton of a great white. And you can see like the size of me back then compared to it and yeah, no thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if I find that picture, I'll post it up on, on the gram or something. Sweet. Fuck. Yeah, I don't know. That's the part where I'm just like, nope, this movie died. I understand. Yeah. I understand how this movie was the movie that kept America out of the water. <laughs> yeah. I understand. Because it's so Perfect easy. timing. Yeah. And it, they it, don't have to be 25 foot with three ton on them. Mm-mm. 15-foot shark's going to kill you just as easy. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at, dude. I mean, even, I mean, pound for pound, it would fuck anybody up. Yeah. You know? They're killing machines. That's what I'm getting at. You you can put a six-foot man in the water with a six-foot shark, and that shark's going to fuck you up. Yeah. Fuck that. I don't want to get ate by anything. No, that's, thank you. That's my, <laughs> that's my ultimate point. It's not like something that has me, like, scared, shaken up at night. No. I just, I don't want to get ate by anything, and this is a movie that reminds you... There's things just naturally that can eat you. Exactly, dude. And that's I think that's the scariest thought. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the water, but I'm also not scared of it. But for the same reasons you've already mentioned, I know the dangers, and I'd rather not put myself in that situation. Not, I mean... If I don't have to, let's put it that way. If I don't have to, I ain't just going to go hang out in the water. I'm going to do it with purpose. Yeah. I'm bodyboarding. I'm going there for an afternoon on a weekend. <laughs> exactly. I ain't there every day. I ain't tempting fate like that. I'll put it this way. If uh, if it comes down to it, I'd do the same thing that guy did. <laughs> Knock them kids off that little float. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that. I'm not trying to be a snack. Other thing that stood out this time through. Not that it hadn't before because it's such a strong performance. But fucking Robert Shaw's performance. Really good. I mean, I would think the moment, if it stands out for anybody, it has to be that monologue that he gave about the, the USS. The yeah, Indianapolis. That and his first one when he's uh, telling yeah. them, and like... the town council. Yeah, the town council is like, 3,000, I'll, I'll find them. But yeah. uh-uh. 10,000, I'll hunt them. Exactly. Head, tail, all whole thing's yours. Everything, <laughs> yeah. So he sets the tone. And I completely believed in that scene that he commanded that entire room. No doubt about it. Everyone shut up and listened to him for a minute. Even if they weren't willing to take him up at that time. It's not like he scared them into 
taking him up on his offer. And it's not like they were immediately like, well, he's obviously the one. They still fucking drag their feet for another 20 minutes. There's something the <laughs> in that scene, too. A little bit prior to that, there's a lady. I've got her name written down in my notes somewhere, but she actually looks like an, a Long Islander or somebody from New York, but she's supposed to portray an Islander, right? And somebody makes a comment to, I think, the mayor. He's like, is that reward going to be in cash or check? And she's like, that's not funny. That's not funny at all. But the thing I thought was interesting was, I think throughout, Brody, his character is trying to assimilate to like an islander. Mm -hmm. And he says that line to somebody else in the film, like back to them. I was like, oh, I didn't didn't pick up on that. Maybe the first time through, the second time it definitely stood Mm. out. I was like, ah, that's kind of clever. Yeah, yeah. When, when we get to it, or if I see it, I'll, I'll mention where it's at. But I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, my God, dude. All the boats trying to leave the fucking island <laughs> to get the shark. Yeah, that was pretty funny. A lot of those guys were townies, too. I mean, they were from that area, which is really cool. Do a homeboy just chucking dynamite in the water? I know. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Give me he's that. like, we're out far enough, right? What the fuck? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Come on, man. Other guys just like, oh, we're going to start shoving right here. I know. What the fuck? I, don't, I, I just, it was such a slapstick moment. It, yeah. Here's something interesting. It fits in weird with the rest of the movie, looking back on it, kind of. But it's fun in the moment. Like, I'm not going to try yeah, no, no, it's a fun take it scene. down too much. But it's weird. This totally is, for the rest of the movie. Yeah, so this is where Carl Gottlieb, his writing came in, in play. For those comedy bits, that is. Oh, right, right. They brought him in specifically to give a little bit more of a, like a break from being just a str- like a straight line action film. They wanted bits of comedy and improvisation and whatnot. And so he set up a lot of those scenes mm-hmm. by rewriting some of the script and whatnot. They brought him in, if I'm not mistaken, because he was friends with Spielberg. And I can't remember exactly what they worked on together. But that's why he brought him in. And okay. because he helped write, of course, he's like, ah, you know, I also want to audition for a part. You get, you let me choose which part. And he chose Meadows because he was more of a background character. He didn't mm-hmm. want to be in a bunch of scenes. He didn't want to, you know, take away from what was actually going on in the film. But yeah, some of those little moments are, are good that he snuck in there. But, you know, when they're all leaving is when Dick Dreyfus comes in. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good, man. He does show up and. He says to those one group of guys, he's like, you know, he's he's trying to tell them or relay the message. He's like, the chief doesn't want all you guys going out there on that boat. And they're, you know, basically get them that. Mm. And he's like, all right, all you guys are all you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even off the bat with him and Quint, and I know on set him and Robert Shaw didn't get along too well. Mm-hmm. But even when they first have their little bit of encounters, you could tell there's that animosity there because he has that scene where he's like, let me see your hands because they're mentioning the ropes. He says, you've got city hands. You've been counting money too long. I was like, ooh, that's a that's a weird slight in a way because Richard Dreyfuss is a Jewish guy. So you could, mm. you could look at it that way. I know it's not the intention. But I was like, ooh, that's a double whammy. <laughs> but it's good. I mean, it builds that tension between those characters too. Yeah. I mean, we already brought up, like, the, the shark getting into the pond a little bit and shit. I love that when the fucking, their son is recovering, he wants fucking coffee. Yeah, I she's like... busted well, up laughing so hard. She asked, I think it was the ice cream flavor that he wanted, if I'm not mistaken. Because she's like, is there anything you want to bring? Ice cream. What flavor? 
Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> it's the way he says it. That's totally Boston or that Massachusetts area, New England. Coffee. So, yep. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, here's the line that I found. All right, so Brody is saying it to, to Hendrix when they're out there on that dock. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's not funny. That's not funny. There's something that Hendrix says to him. That's where he's trying to assimilate. So, anywho, that's what I wrote down. God, I don't know. I keep just sort of bouncing all over. That's all right. My I mean, notes, my notes on this movie were so spaced out because there were so many times I just stopped and just started watching the movie. Yeah, it's a really fun film all the way through. Now, granted, it's an easy one to follow because I don't think there's like a lot of metaphors at play and a lot. I mean, there are. But no, like they all get out on the boat. They keep getting at the shark. Yeah. And we just see how badass Jaws is. I know. It just keeps taking just all these keeps, fucking barrels. Yeah. It keeps taking all these barrels. Keeps damaging their submerge. boat. Yeah. Uh, eventually beast. gets Quint. Kind of appears like they gets Dick Dreyfus, but doesn't. But yep. fucking Chief Brody takes him out. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Explodes him, which is badass. Yeah. At first, when I, I totally forgot how he even gets the tank in there in the first place. Like, that's mm. one of those scenes I just forgot about. But that's actually like super frightening is after you watch Quint get eaten alive and he goes down and submerges and then, you know, he's taking cover inside the boat. It fucking comes back right through and starts to come at him. I'm like, oh, that would be fucking frightening, man, if you were in that situation. Yeah, but granted, like I said, he got the tank in, pulls that shot off and all that good stuff and does in Bruce. But man, they, uh, that last act is fucking awesome. I've always been curious about all the different types of fishing that require you to actually have to strap in to fish. I know. But I I was thinking about it, and I'm like, you know what? Fuck that. I don't want to do that. I know it, man. Yeah, if you're catching, like, some huge fucking fish or, but that's in case, also sharks and all that. super badass moment, Quint just, like, locks himself, himself in. in. He knows right, the tension's on the this. line. He hears it clink. Yep. Is ready, rock and roll. I was like, that's awesome, dude. I don't want to be him. <laughs> I don't want to be in that situation. But he was ready to rock and roll. Oh, something about that seems so badass, though, too. Like, yeah. Because it's that weird line. And honestly, like, if you're taking on something like Jaws, I ain't going to, like, blame you for shooting that bastard. But no kidding. It's not like just shooting something. No, no, no. You're using help, but it's only because this is literally be physically impossible for you to do you can't reel that fucking shark in on that there's no way but if it even if it but all it's doing is augmenting what you can do physically absolutely and so i'm just like it's super fucking impressive the guys that do shit like that with like the swordfish and shit man no kidding super fucking impressive because that's just an insane endurance battle man yeah you could be at it for hours hours and something seems super fucking cool about that. And then I just try to think about whether I would. I'm like, no, no I don't want to do that. That right doesn't now. sound fun enough to me. I'm good. It's not enough of a payoff. <laughs> no. Is the fucking. It, when I pull up that fucking swordfish, is it full with weed? No. Better be. Is it going to blow me? No. Nope. nope. All right, then I'm good. <laughs> you going back in, sucker. <laughs> no kidding. But yeah, I mean, hats off to those guys who can do that. That was just another... When Quint strapped in, it just rolled through my head. I'm like, people do this shit. Yeah. No kidding, right? I tell you a scene I thought was neat. It was actually a scene... It's probably been... Probably lifted in terms of what we've done on the show more so than any other scene maybe in this film. And that's the like the dinner table scene that Brody has with his young son where they're oh, mimicking. Yeah. And I was watching some of the behind-the-scenes 
on that. And Roy Scheider was talking about that. And he said that the kid who played that part, you know, in between takes, they were just getting ready for the scene. And he was doing all that, rubbing his hands. And he noticed the kid was doing that, right? Kind of aping him. Mm. He told Spielberg, he's like, hey, watch this. And so he did. The kid was miming him. And they wound up using that as a part of the, you know, as a part of the film. And that's one of those scenes. It's like, if you've seen it in this, you've probably seen it in other films. We've talked about it in Found, which is a weird reference for that. Right. I know it's happened again in another film that we've, oh, I'm trying to think what it is. There's, there's another film that we've reviewed somewhere down the line that does the same shit. I think it's just flipping the roles and who's miming whom. But regardless, I thought, all right, that's, that's pretty cool. See, now the references my mind is always going towards, and this doesn't fit in as well with what we do here, talking about horror movies and shit, but when I watch Jaws, just knowing how much of a fan he is, I keep watching for all the things that Kevin Smith lifted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's just like the, oh yeah, the fucking go in the cage. Cage goes in the water. Shark's in the water. Our shark. Our shark. Salsa shark. <laughs> Or the uh, the scar scene. That was really cool. I actually like that a lot. Because then they do that in Chasing Amy. God, I haven't seen that in a long time. And of course, I'm going to make the connection now. If, if none of y'all know this, and I'm just going to let my Kevin nerd fucking fanboy f- flags fly. Brody Bruce yeah. is because Chief Brody, and this is Mallrats, Brody Bruce is Chief Brody, and then the animatronic shark was named Bruce on set. Right. T.S. Quint mm-hmm. is the shark. Quint. Yeah. Quint. Um, it's for Brody. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I'm missing something else from Well, he even talks too. about with Quint wanting to propose at Universal. At Universal. When Jaws, Jaws comes arrived. up out of the water. He was like, come on, man. <laughs> uh, and he, of course, is planning on trying to make moose Jaws. Yeah. Which, if he makes moose Jaws, we're going to be covering it on the show. Because it's Jaws with a moose. Oh, dude, it's so fucking boss. <laughs> I hope it happens, man. I hope it happens so bad. Yeah. Oh. All right, so. Moose Jaws, yes. Well, Moose Jaws, yes, of course. <laughs> Hashtag Moose Jaws, yes. Not that we haven't ventured outside of our normal realms of horror before. Does this movie fit? This movie? In the realm of quote-unquote horror? It's usually listed more as a thriller. Right. I, but it yeah. is the movie that literally yeah, I mean, it's, affected America to the point where they did not go to beaches as much the summer that this absolutely. came out. I'd absolutely say this is a horror film because it's a horrific We've been talking about it for the last probably 15, 20 minutes, how petrified we would be if we were in that scenario, right? There's already that fear of water. Some people already have that. And um, just the unknown, you know? And then the ravage that it does. It keeps people out of water. It's eating people in the water. What the fuck? Right. (laughs) It's a killer. It's a creature feature. Yeah. It's a little bit more akin to like a creature feature or even even kind of like kaiju. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's all out in the open. It's just I mean, that, like, it's this force of nature that you're trying to survive against. It might be weird to attach it. Survival horror? I was going to say a little bit of a slasher, too. It's Yeah, he's kind of a slasher. He's kind of the Mike Myers of the sea. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's just different uh, territory. That's all. Kind of the Mike Myers of the sea. Now, the only... I love the score. Oh, John Williams' yeah. score is fucking incredible. There's parts in the transition especially from the second to the third act Mm -hmm. where he uses straight up adventure themes and I feel like it kind of breaks the tension. A little bit. I know what you're saying. It it feels a little playful. 
Yeah, it feels way more at home with like Indiana Jones yeah, than I the agree. fact that there's a 25 foot killer creature that's <laughs> not acting like a yeah. normal shark is at this point just coming out for them. Yep, it knows. It'd be known. It wasn't that it wasn't beautiful, but it broke the tension in a way where I'm like, you can just keep the tension up with this score. Yeah, absolutely. Instead, you know what I mean? No, I agree with you there. There's, and we've mentioned this several times, where some of that stuff can pull you out of a film. If if the score's a little off or just doesn't fit the motif or, like you said, the tension or taking away from it. Now, being John Williams, he's masterful enough that when it really needed to come back around, it would come back around. Put you right back in. But there's times where I felt like it personally, like, I was like, well, why are we having fun? Why is this suddenly the Goonies? I think a little bit, too, maybe, maybe, is it's diverting your attention away from that. Like, oh, they're going on an adventure. We're going fishing. What are you going to tell her? We're out fishing. (laughs) Or tell the kids. So... Yeah, it's just a little bit of a misdirection, perhaps. But I know what you're getting at, too. I like how often, especially towards the first half of the movie, that Spielberg lets the camera just linger, especially on Quint. Yeah. And just set up some... Fucking, I love that shot where it's just like the sunset behind him when he's just waiting with the fucking gun out on the bow. Yeah, I, I put down the montage of the men waiting... Because that's what they're doing. They're just waiting for the shark. But it's just as the sun is setting and those backgrounds you get off the water, that's really good cinematography. I knew that this didn't happen, but something I kind of I wanted to happen, not in a way where it takes away from the film that it didn't happen, but just like in my mind, it seems like it'd be a lot of fun if you rigged shit up like this, is when they were chasing down Jaws and you know they were like following the barrel and stuff and they come up close enough on the barrel that they ram into it and then they have to make the hard turn and it comes up behind them and that's when they start trying to yeah really attach it at the back and the shit gets ripped off and all that fucking stuff when they first bump into it there's something hanging off the boat there for a split second i thought they were trying to catch the barrel in that and so that they could just like turn the fucking boat Damn, and just boss. like yank on fucking jaws yeah you know what i mean i'm like do they have a barrel catcher at the front and then i'm like i've seen this movie i know that they don't have a barrel catcher <laughs> at the front like, that would have been awesome though yeah but you know like stick the barrel then like hook the barrel yeah. and just gotcha ass use the boat's power <laughs> to fucking drag the shark and tie yeah it because out. it's tethered to the barrel mm-hmm. yeah exactly just drag them back but did you oh man but that talking about the barrels that made me think like i didn't do bad at like math and physics and stuff back in the day and i don't know the exact computations but i was trying to think of the type of force it would take to keep those barrels underwater the way cheese that fucking shark was yeah and suddenly i'm like this movie scares me even more now because now i understand how powerful the shark is in a way that i could not comprehend when i was younger yeah and there was something i was reading a little bit too is you know you can't say that this film was 100 percent accurate because it's not, but... Because it's not, no. No, no, no. But if we're going by this, right, by this shark's power, just dragging down one barrel alone, that's... <laughs> you're dealing with a beast, let alone three that this film portrays, and you're like, man, you're fucked. You're and super it takes fucked. a lot of damage anyway. Yeah. It's, this guy's fucked a tank. up, and they get him with the fucking... They get him even with the gun a few times. A few times. Brody gets him, Quint gets him a few times, Now they jab him a few times... At least one of those barrels is in a very uncomfortable position under its jaw for a bit. Like, Oh, here's something I was going to ask. 
a little bit. This is something I noticed with Hooper, Dick okay. Drivis's character. There's a scene where he and Brody go out to scuba dive because they found one of the fishermen's boats. Oh, you noticed his boat was like five times better, and why aren't they using that instead? Well, that too. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> but something I noticed about Dreyfus's character, Hooper specifically, that okay. he does in this scene and then what he does later <clears throat> is when he goes down there to dive, he finds the tooth attached to the hole. Oh, yeah. Right? And then, of course, the body comes out, and it spooks him. He drops all that shit. And we do have to mention the mayor's fucking complete idiot in this film. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. Right? But one of his arguments is like, oh, no tooth, no shark. No evidence, right? But then when they do put Hooper into the fucking tank, and he goes down there, and he gets spooked by the shark, and he drops the fucking spear. It's the most infuriating. It's like it, it, he's mirroring what he did earlier in the film. He's, mm-hmm. he's a klutz. <laughs> He's dropped shit. I understand that it's already been set up, but that was the most infuriating thing at that moment. I'm like, why are you even holding that outside your fucking cage right now? There was a part of me hoping that his ass would have gotten in that cage, because that was ferocious. Yeah, that was dumb. There's probably, theoretically, there's no way he should have survived that. No. No. But for the film's sake, they kept him in. It worked. I mean, also, there's a part of me, though, that when he goes down there and finally has, like, his hero (laughs) moment, like, that he actually gets it. Yeah. And he doesn't. He no, just he... gets to, like, slink off for a bit and come back up once once Brody's <laughs> taking care of it. Yeah, he laid low, man. I do like how there's that sort of slow flip on the boat where, like, Quint does not like Hooper. But he kind of automatically gives Brody more respect just because he's fucking chief of police. Until he realizes that Brody is useless on the ocean. Exactly. <laughs> no, you're right. There is that flip because... And he doesn't immediately, like... He doesn't think less of Brody at that point. No, 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 but he just... realizes that he has to slip into a teacher role. And because he likes Brody, he does slip into the teacher role. Right. I think that moment where he's telling Brody, you know, is like, next time, just ask me which <clears throat> which not the pool and I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. You know? And he wouldn't have done the same thing for Hoop. There's no, no way. No, but he also, at that moment, has, like, a realization moment where he's like, fuck, I was backing the wrong guy. Like, at least this guy's been on the ocean. Yeah, he's got a boat. He knows his shit. Yeah, he just doesn't like him because he's city boy, college boy. I'm not going to admit it out loud, but fuck, this guy knows what Ah, he's doing. this dick. I got to work with him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I do like all that stuff. Now, here's something I noticed immediately, and I don't know if this was done intentional. Maybe this isn't me reading into it too much, is the literal opening credits, right? The way that the names are framed when you see them. You see Robert Shaw, mm-hmm. Roy Scheider, and then uh, Richard Dreyfus in that kind of triangle pyramid looking okay, way. Yeah. I'm like, is this film already like setting us up? You got Shaw, he's the, the Captain Ahab essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other two guys are the survivors. So I was like, oh, is this title credit already hinting at it? the fact that this is the order of how it finishes, like right. Quinn dies and the other two guys survive. Well, that's why they're underneath them. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just me reading into it. All right. So <laughs> this isn't an original thought. People have been already talking about this for months, but the creepiness of the town's reaction compared to what we're going through with the Rona. Yeah. Like that jumps out like stupid. Weird, oh man. Right? Yeah. Closing the beaches. What? No, no. We got to save the town's economy. The Rona's in the fucking ocean. <laughs> you don't go in the ocean. To the point where I ended up writing down in my notes that I'm like, 
cutting the open the other fucking shark is just the equivalent of testing. Exactly. And they didn't even want to do that. I mean, no, granted, I, I understand why they didn't want to do it at that particular moment, but you've got to do it you've soon. Got to do it. Yeah. Sooner than later. Like, at least get the fish out of here in somewhere we can do that just to verify. Mm-hmm. You know? It was weird. Like I said, not original. Like, people have been talking about this on the internet for a bit now, but it's fucking weird how, like... Yeah, no kidding when you think about it. This thing that was this work of fiction for, like, 45 years (laughs) is suddenly like, oh, oh, no, I guess that's actually how public officials act sometimes. Well, that sucks. (laughs) I know it, and, you know... 45 years later, it's still happening. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Not a coincidence, unfortunately. Here's something I mentioned to you when we did Maniac, as I was watching some Mm behind-the-scenes stuff, and I think I told you throughout the week, I might have figured out the scene where Joe Spinell and his buddy were supposed to be in. Was it the two guys that... I think so. I think it was the two guys on the dock that were chumming and dropping the line. Which, I mean, that foreshadows what happens with Quint and the rest of the guys. But, yeah, I was like, oh, I think that's a scene with Spinell and the guys swimming back and Spinell's supposed to be on the dock, you know, trying to tell his buddy, you know, come back, come Come back. Come on, Get your feet in. (laughs) Get your feet in. If my buddy's telling me to go that quickly, like, I I know that the dude was older, but I'm moving a lot faster than that. Well, at first, he he starts to get dragged, right? And at that point, I'm like, why are you hanging on, dude? Right? Like, yeah, why don't you just roll off the, roll off the side? Fuck roll off that the side noise. Right now. Roll off the side right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as it starts moving, I'm like, go. It's not good. No. <laughs> I know you where are. this ends. There's only so many things that could be dragging you right now, and none of these seem like a good idea. Yeah, do you want to be in the belly of the beast? (laughs) No. Oh, fuck, yeah. Nope. Because he let himself get drug out a bit. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Granted, he got I almost lucky. forgot about that scene. I didn't write any notes down about that scene. All that was is there was a little bit a little bit of comedy because the guys were like, oh, this is my wife's roast. He's like, well, yeah. $3,000 is going to buy us a lot of roasts. You'll be all right. And they destroy the fucking dock. <laughs> Lose our fucking roast. Almost got eaten. Just because we, uh, we did talk about the mayor for a second, the same sort of thing does happen in the book. And this is one of the changes that got made, but it's not for the same reasons. They really, they simplified the character a lot in the movie. In the book, there's like a weird subplot where like he owes the mob. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> when I was watching some of that behind the scenes stuff, they talked about where you know, like, yeah, to cut this out. and mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Since it's one of the only things I do remember about the book, I thought I'd bring I, it up. I also think they mentioned a little bit there was like a more dynamic with uh, Brody and his wife, mm. too, that they kind of cut back out on in this film, which I mean, I understand. Yeah. You can only put so much shit in the film, you know. When I was doing that research, what I thought was really cool was with Peter Benchley. He talked about how he came up with the idea for the film in the first place. Mm. I don't know if you caught wind or not, but um, he said he had some ideas kicked around about sharks, you know what would happen if they came in, but he didn't really know where to go with it until he came across a story back in 1964 where a shark fisherman off of Long Island caught a 4,500-pound great white shark, right? And he's like, that's where it really started to rattle off some ideas. And he said in about 1970 or 71 is um, when a publisher actually offered him to write that story Right, mm. there's like that would actually make for a cool story, mm-hmm. and so yeah, he started to write it down, and he mentioned 
some of the working titles. He said that was the hardest part for him to figure out was how to name this fucking book, right? All right, yeah, yeah. And he said some of the working titles were The Stillness in the Water. Okay, dumb. A Silence in the Deep. Yep, still dumb. Leviathan Rising. Better. And then he said there was this French novelist who kind of did the same thing. Like he said, it was very personal, but also very pretentious and always had like the jaws of Leviathan, the jaws of something, the jaw. Oh, okay. And he said that, that kept sticking out to him was the jaws. And he said uh, 20 minutes prior to him and his editor meeting the publishers to finalize the fucking book and everything that he was having, uh, I guess, lunch with uh, his, his editor. The guy's name is Tom Condon, but they were at this place called the Cowboy Diner in New York City. And they're like, what the fuck are we going to name this book? And they they just like, well, Jaws, just, it fits on a book. It's short. And they, they loved it. And not them, but the publishers loved it. Yeah. And the rest is kind of history. So the name stuck from there. And then some of the cool stuff is, you know, how it came into Spielberg's hands and all this I other stuff. I don't think it would have been as successful with, without that name. It's simple. It's to the point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's iconic now, of course, mm-hmm. you know. It goes right along with the fucking poster, which is another iconic symbol for this film. So good. Yeah. So good. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how that stuff came to fruition. I think his publisher at the time was Doubleday, and they were, like, introducing the book to, like, the monthly book club and all these Reader's Digest and whatnot, and they started getting their hands on it, and they offered him, like, I think almost five hundred grand to publish the book. And then Universal caught wind, I think, because of Reader's Digest and some other shit, mm-hmm. one of the producers. And they're like, yeah, let's pick it up. And I think they picked it up for like 150 grand or something like that. Okay. Yeah, they initially had somebody else in mind before Spielberg, I think two guys. One guy kept referring to the shark as a whale. And they're like, nah, nah <laughs> wait, and, uh, sorry, guy. But because of, it was because of Duel and the film right after that, that's where Spielberg kind of got a little bit of recognition Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he said that he saw like a 60-page basically stack. He started reading it, and he's like, he liked the idea. And it wasn't until this guy named uh, Howard Sackler actually came in. He didn't get credited for helping write the script, but he actually did a lot of rewriting with mm-hmm. uh, Spielberg. But this guy was a Pulitzer Prize winner. I think he helped write The Great White Hope. I think it was the name of the book okay. that, he, that he wrote. But uh, it was suggested by the two producers – And they said that uh, he was an expert scuba diver, so he knew a lot about sharks, along with Benchley, apparently, was a really good diver as well. And um, they said that there's a Hollywood term that they don't like to use, but it's what they call breaking the back of the film, meaning like, you know, they've got everything in place. It was a transition from what they were trying to do between acts. He kind of fleshed out all the shark stuff they were going to do in the film. Yeah, and then, like I said, that's later on when they brought Gottlieb in to for some of the comic relief and for some of the, the local scenes and shit mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was like, that's pretty interesting. I like how that stuff kind of comes to fruition. And then, uh, they said this and that hadn't been discussed, I guess, prior to like 2012, but there was a screen actors guild contract around 74. I think it was when they were filming this, that said that, um, that a studio would not green light a film unless they could finish it before june 30th and they started filming this in like may of that oh, year shit. okay so they only have 55 days to shoot it that didn't go according to plan but he said it wasn't until those guys came on board to help finish the script and even then they like they still didn't know exactly what they were going to be doing mm-hmm. when they got on set they just knew they had the script done and that's all they needed right but this i think they said it took like an extra 100 days to film 
So it was like 155 days. And Spielberg was like, this, I'm done. <laughs> no one's ever going to hire me again. Yeah, so there's some interesting stuff too. Like he sure. didn't show up on the last day of shooting because he thought that his crew members were going to toss him into the ocean. Mm. <laughs> he's like, he didn't want to be there for all that. So that's actually like a thing now with Spielberg is he's always absent the last day of shooting. Oh, I oh, guess yeah. principal photography. So yeah, Amazing. tradition that started with Jaws. Trying to think, if there's anything else that really jumps out at me about it that's worth bringing up. Uh, maybe two more bits yeah, for me, and then I can wrap it up. A second unit who actually caught the footage of the underwater shark scenes and all that oh, stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, it was a couple. They're called Ron and Valerie Taylor. They actually shot this down in uh, South Australia. There was a, a region called the Dangerous Reef. They were a part of a documentary that this guy named Peter Gimble filmed. There was a documentary called Blue Water, White Death which was supposed to be like the documentary about sharks, right? And because Peter Gimble actually wanted to like shoot the scenes for the film, they're like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. So they sent that couple down there and, and captured all that. But this is, <laughs> this is kind of neat. In order to get the perspective shots, right? Mm -hmm. There's like, there, we don't have a 25-foot shark that we can get in the water. It's like the, long, the biggest one we could find is like 12, 13-footer. But to put in perspective, they hired a little person who was actually like a stunt person for like horse riding and some other, he'd never worked in the water, but he was willing to do it. And so they put him in that little cage and um, all that stuff that you see, like with Richard Dreyfuss, the cage getting attacked and all that shit. It mm -hmm. was actually that little person. Um, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. But then I think some other insert shots, they actually filmed somewhere in California, like in a pool. But Dick Warlock, was actually in some of those. Yeah. He was a stuntman in some of that stuff. Yeah, Dick Warlock. I was like, oh, damn, I didn't know that. So, yeah, I got to talk about Dick Warlock again. Yeah. Yay. So, yeah, all the all the stuff that you see with actual shark footage is from that couple okay. done in Australia. So, that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's got some pretty neat connections. I already talked about prior with Maniac. So, for those who haven't heard our Maniac episode, if you want to know how Joe Spinell and his buddy are friends with Spielberg and how they went to bat for him during the uh, award season. That's it's yeah. right there in that episode, which is really cool. Yeah, ultimately, like I said, this is one of the most famous movies of all time. I know it, man. You guys have probably seen it. If not, I mean, definitely do yourself a favor. It, There's I can literally see, documentaries about the making of it. It's crazy, man. When I started watching them, there was two different ones. One was like two hours long. Mm -hmm. The other one was like an hour and a half. I was like, fuck, I can't watch all this. But eventually I will somewhere down the road. And it's all interesting. Same thing. It gives you everything from how it's how it came to be in tune and conception, how everybody got hired, the main actors, how everybody, the writers, et cetera, et cetera, how they picked Martha's Vineyard. It came down in between that and I think eastern parts of Long Island. They chose Martha's Vineyard because it had more of um, a middle class feel oh, at yeah, that yeah. time. So they chose that instead. So yeah, little stuff like that. I mean, even some of the townies. They like to share the stories of the people that were in it. And there's a scene, too, with uh, when they're on the dock. And one of the guys is like, uh, what does he say? He's like, a what? He kind of turns. Oh, a tiger shark. Because he's oh, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, what kind oh, of shark got, is that? A what? They said that's like, they've got those on T-shirts <laughs> in Martha's Vineyard of that guy. And he's like, he said, no matter what, there's always somebody who'll come up to me and, do, and says that line to me. A what? A what? Yeah, it's just little stuff like that. I mean, I mentioned Alex Kintner. This may be the last one. The actor's name is Jeffrey Voorhees. Of course it is. <laughs> right? And we've already mentioned the lady, too, unfortunately passed away. But 
I was reading a story that she had like went back up to Martha's Vineyard years and years later. And she sat down and was having dinner and she'd mentioned the fact she's like, yeah, I was in Jaws and I played the mother of the kid who, you know, got mm-hmm. killed and whatnot. And she, she was making kind of comments because of like some of the names of the sandwiches and shit. It was like the Alex Kittner, blah, blah, blah. She's like, that's where she was bringing up that story. Mm-hmm. And somebody was like, well, hold on one second. Let me go grab the manager, like the owner. And it was the guy, Jeffrey Voorhees. Oh, shit. And they hadn't seen each other since the filming mm-hmm. of that film. So they reunited and whatnot. But then it started kicking some, you know, some thoughts in my head. It was like, I wonder how much the Voorhees name and the fact that his mom watched him get killed in the water had an influence on Friday the 13th, if at all. Right. What, what year was Friday the 13th? 1980. So it was like five years after the fact. Right. Maybe. I'm just saying. It would be a weird coincidence, but yeah. it made me think of that a little bit. Well, shit. No, I'm going to be thinking of it all night. <laughs> I don't have much else to say other than go watch it. I feel like we almost man. cheated a little bit with this. It was almost like a kickback and watch a really good movie to start the summer, but we yeah. need that too. So. No, it, it is fun. Like so You can break this film down in three acts, and each one of the acts are fun because they lead right into the other. And uh, yeah, can't say enough about the acting, the score, the editing, all of it. I mean, this is where a lot of people caught their break. And somehow we managed to accidentally cover it during its 45th anniversary, so... <laughs> Yeah, yes. Yeah, first blockbuster we've already mentioned. Yeah. First film to ever break $100 million at the box office. It held that record until Star Wars came along. Yep. We haven't planned next week yet, have we? Not yet. Shit, we got to do that. Well, in order to listen to us next week, no matter what the fuck we end up talking about, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. I'll keep you up to date on all the latest episodes. If you can rate and review us, that would also be super cool because algorithms run everything in our new digital age. Beyond that, you can always head over to our website, www.friedsquirms.com, and check out all the rest of our shit. You can hit us up through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. And while you're at the website, if you click the links up at the top of the page, you will notice we are part of the Ear Verm Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on there. Uh, listen to me talk about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery. Listen to Zach, my co-host from General Nerdery, talk about war gaming and war philosophy combined on the art of war gaming and other shows to come check out fried squirms across all the social medias we'd love to hear from you yeah we love you we love you of course we do once again recommendations suggestions independent filmmakers we'll rake our eyeballs all over that film if you need it yeah i think that's about it we got to figure out what we're doing next week we're gonna go do that and in the meantime, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms, out. out. <laughs>